All right, how's everyone doing? It's nice to be back. As many of you know, a um, small team of us uh, got the chance to spend 11 days uh, overseas. We spent some time in Turkey, Albania, and Greece. We were visiting some of our missionaries we support and getting to know other missionaries. Um, and uh, God willing, next week, I believe, we're going to be able to share a little bit more of what we saw and what we learned and that part of the world. But as I was thinking about uh, the term overseas, there's a, just a funny thing that happened to me when I was over there. When I was over there, uh, something got broken in my house and my, my wife is trying to, you know, handle these things. So there's a bunch of people in our house trying to fix that. And I'm calling her from there and we're having this conversation about what to do. And the person is asking things to my wife. My wife is asking things to me. And then she says to the guy, well, this is my husband. He's overseas. And he goes, well, thank him for his service. <laughs> and I'm like, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm still serving the Lord. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal. I want to welcome you all to Witten Bible Church. Uh, and if you're new to the church, this thing you should know about us. We want to be people that are known by the way we love. We want to be a church that knows how to love others, that knows how to love God, that knows how to love one another and our neighbors and the nations. That's kind of what we want to be as a church. But we also as a church recognize that the only way we could possibly do that, the only way we could possibly learn how to love God and one another and the neighbors and the nations is by first understanding and believing why Jesus had to die. Actually, let me make a radical statement. If we don't understand and believe why is it that Jesus had to die, we have nothing. There is no Christianity. This will be a social club. There will be nothing if we really don't understand why is it that Jesus had to die. It's interesting because in the text we read, the word must appear a number of times. And I'm going to borrow that word to answer three questions today. Why must Jesus suffer and die? And if that is true, then why must learn, why must, uh, learn to deny ourselves? And if that is true, then why must we never forget our hope? So the first one is going to build into the second one, and the third one is going to build into the it's going to be from the first one and the second one. So what I'm trying to answer here is, to, is, is for us to have an understanding on why Jesus going to the cross was not an option. So I need you to, look at, uh, I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and you've got to say, you really got to pay attention. Go ahead. <laughs> now you respond and then you say, no, 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 you pay attention. <laughs> Let's go with the first point. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? If you were here last week, you probably remember, if not, I'm going to give you a little bit of context, that the text we looked at last week, there's a conversation between Peter and Jesus. And actually, the rest of the disciples are present. But in this conversation, Peter makes this profound confession. He says that he understood and believed uh, because of the illumination of God, the Father, in his life, that he understood and believed that Jesus was the Messiah, 
the son of the living God, that he believed that Jesus was the promised, anointed Messiah and Savior from the Old Testament. That's a profound confession. And in response to that confession, Jesus makes another confession. He says that he is the rock. He is the ultimate foundation of the church, the eternal security of the church, and that the church is so secure that not even the gates of hell can destroy the church or overcome the church. Now, that's a beautiful statement because he's talking about you and me. We have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. No matter how much the culture change, the church is indestructible because our rock makes it indestructible. Now, you would think that after Peter says this confession, and the disciples hear these things from the mouth of Jesus. You would think that they will be ready to go into the world to proclaim the gospel, to show the power of the gospel, to be people of light and salt, to be agents of transformation. You would think that this is the perfect time for the disciples to now go into the world and take care of business. But that is not what happens in the text. Actually, the last verse from the section we looked at last week says... That Jesus ordered his disciples in verse 20 not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. How many of you guys find that weird? How many of you guys just don't care about life? <laughs> Did you guys miss me? I said that three weeks ago. I find this super interesting because really it doesn't make any sense. Why is it that they're not ready to go into the world? They just made this profound confession. Jesus just said this crazy good thing. Why is it that they're not ready? And I'm here to argue that I think that part of the reason why the, the Lord is not sending them into the world just yet is because even though they have some sort of information about Jesus and they believe certain things, they don't fully understand completely who Jesus was and what he was going to do. Actually, let me, let me make this argument. I, I think that they knew who Jesus was. He was the Messiah. They also knew that Jesus, why Jesus came. He came to save the world. They knew all of that stuff. What they did not know is how he was going to save the world. Now, I know that that's the reason why they're struggling with this, because the things that they had learned in their own religion was that Jesus, the Messiah, was supposed to be this political figure, hello, this holy warrior that will come to, um, that will come to overcome the Roman Empire by force and that would take his people and put them in positions of power so they can overcome everything else. Haven't you heard that story before? I heard it two years ago. Three years ago, and in the history of our nation. They had this idea that the Messiah was supposed to be a political power person that comes by force, destroys everything that is evil. See, they did not know that that is not what Jesus came to do. I think that they skipped a whole bunch of verses from the Old Testament that clearly talks about this Messiah that will come to uh, conquer the world, but not by force. To conquer the world through cruciform love by being a king 
on a cross. Now, this is what Jesus is about to correct. See, all these people had preconceptions about the Messiah. They had some expectation about what the Messiah was supposed to do. And what Jesus is for them to unlearn what they had learned so they could relearn what they needed to learn. And he does it by saying this in verse 21. Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things, and that he must be killed. Now, you have no idea how shocking this had to be to this group of men. Jesus is saying something that is contrary to what they have already heard. Once again, this is contrary to their preconceptions, their expectations. Now, let's pretend for a second that we are the disciples. And let's pretend that we grew up hearing that this is the Messiah supposed to be some sort of political figure. What would be your reaction? I think that there's only four possible reactions. I think that if you one of these, uh, one of the disciples could be maybe like a seeker. Meaning that they hear this thing that Jesus just said and they would say something like, wait, what? Did I believe the wrong thing all these years? The good thing about the seeker is that it's a seeker. Therefore, this person is going to try to find the truth. They don't walk away. They try to find the truth. But maybe you're not that kind of disciple. Maybe you are the, what I would call the new age disciple. The new age disciple is the one that says, wait, what? Is this true? Well, it doesn't matter if it's true. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. We can all have a different truth. You know what's the problem with a new age seeker? A new age disciple, quote unquote? That is extremely dangerous because we have no base for morality or justice. Why? Because if your truth is, my, is your truth and my truth is my truth, then you don't get to tell me what is wrong. I can't tell you what is wrong. I could go over there, smack you in the face, and you can say that is wrong. And I would say, says who? Let's say that you're not the seeker of the new age, but then you're the spiritually stubborn. This is the one that hears what Jesus just said, and they say, wait, what? Is that true? No, that cannot be true. This is what I've learned about spiritually stubborn people. They're honest, but they're also honestly wrong. So here we have three different types of quote-unquote disciples, the seeker, the new age, and the spiritually stubborn. And then we have one more, which I think is the perfect example of where Peter is at this moment in the story, which is the religious person. Because the religious person hears what Jesus just said and you say, wait, what? Is that true? That can't be true. Let me fix Jesus. Let me adjust Jesus for what I want Jesus to be. Let me modify who Jesus is so it fits my preconceptions and my expectations. Now, why would I say that I think that this is Peter? Well, because if you've been following the narrative, you know that Peter is not a seeker. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He's not a new age. He knows that there's only one Messiah. He's not, religiously, uh, he's not spiritually stubborn because he has been learning along the way. 
But I do think that at this moment, Peter is still struggling with his religious preconceptions. He just can't see it. Why would Jesus, being the Messiah, the one that comes to save the world, would say that he needs to go to the cross? It doesn't make any sense to him. And by the way, I think that we all struggle in our faith when the God we have does does not match the God we want. So look at what Peter does in verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. And he says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, in order for you to understand the weight of what is happening here, you need to understand that the word rebuke is only used in the Gospels to talk about someone that is casting out a demon. So here we have religious Peter that created religious Peter rebuking the creator. It's almost like if he's saying, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And they're like, wait, what? You're Jesus. No, it didn't, it didn't work that way. But that's kind of what is happening here. Here you have a man this big telling that God that that's not the way it's supposed to be. Don't you find that ironic? The same, guy, the same guy that a few minutes before had said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, now says to Jesus, you could never be a king on a cross. That doesn't make any sense. You cannot be a powerless savior. That's offensive. There's no such a thing as a suffering Messiah. That's disgusting. There's no such a thing as crucified love. That's unconceivable. Now, I want you to see how Jesus responds. Verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely me human concerns. Now, listen, I got to be honest. I'm reading this, and I find that offensive and funny. Let me explain why I say that. Offensive Because Jesus is saying to Peter, loving Peter, caring Peter, that he's behaving the way Satan does. He's not saying that Peter is demon-possessed. He will be casting out demons. He did it before. He's telling to Peter, you are behaving the way Satan does. Actually, he's saying you are being influenced by him. Because Satan wants to tempt me so I don't go to the cross. And then he says to Peter, you are thinking like a human being. You're not seeing things from God's perspective. I mean, I don't care how nice people tell you, get behind me, Satan. It's always offensive. (laughs) You know, I mean well, but... Get behind me, Satan. Why do I say that that's funny? Well, a little bit funny, at least to me. It's because Peter is accusing Jesus to doing something that evil people would do. It's almost like if Peter is saying, 
you are behaving like Satan. And then Jesus turns around and says, no, you are behaving like Satan. If I was Peter, I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to help. So it's crazy because sometimes Satan works through nice people. Now, once again, you have to realize that part of the reason why Peter is struggling with this is because the Savior he has in his mind does not match the Savior that we find in the Bible. And you've got to ask the question, why is it that Satan does not want Jesus to get to the cross? See, this is a crazy thing. I'm convinced that Jesus had no, I mean, Satan had no issues with Jesus becoming a human being. He's like, cool, go ahead. Satan has no issues of Jesus performing miracles and, and forgiving sins and doing all these things. I think that Satan is like, yeah, cool, go ahead. This is the first time in which we see Satan moving through a human being so Jesus does not make it to the cross. You got to ask the question, why? And I'm going to give you three reasons. Because without the cross, there's no forgiveness. Because without the cross, there is no love. And because without for, uh, the cross, there is no transformation. Let me walk you through this. Without the cross, there is no forgiveness. Up until this point, the disciples are having a hard time understanding that Jesus did not come to overcome uh, Rome. Listen, they do know that Jesus forgives people. What they don't know is that forgiveness, listen up church, forgiveness requires that someone loses. Forgiveness requires that someone must absorb the cost of the lost. This, this, uh, just, just put it this way. Even if you repent, Jesus, God cannot just say, good job, go home. Someone must die. Why? I'm going to give you an example. This is only an example. Let's say that I invite you and your kids to my house. Let's say that you have like six kids. For whatever reason. <laughs> so lack of self-control, the Lord told you to, I don't know. You just have six kids. <laughs> and let's say that when you get to my house, you see that I have this beautiful piece of art that is worth half a million dollars. And automatically you think, man, how much money does Hannibal make? <laughs> and I would say, that's not the point. <laughs> and I don't have something like that, just in case. <laughs> but let's say that your kids start being kids, man. They're playing around, right? And before you got there, you told the kids, don't touch anything, don't touch anything, don't touch anything. Hannibal is a pastor. He's going to go ugly, right? <laughs> but your kid is playing around. And you keep break the piece of art. Right? Now you feel embarrassed as a, as a normal parent. Right? And you go, I'm so sorry, Hannibal. And then you look at little Hannibal, because that's the name of the kid. They really like me, so they put the, the name of the kid. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they looked at little Hannibal and says, I told you not to touch anything. 
Now, Heidi and I, as good hosts, we say, don't worry. I mean, your kid lacks self-control. <laughs> your parenting skills are terrible. <laughs> you would never say that. You think about it, but you don't say it. <laughs> That's the thing. When you think you're holy, you're not that holy. <laughs> no, no, no. You would never say that. You look around and you say to the family, don't worry. I mean, things happen. I just lost half a million dollars. No, you say, don't worry, you know. And then you say, thank you. And then you look a little Hannibal. And then you say, because forgiveness requires repentance. Amen? The kid turns around and said, I'm sorry. It's, he just came from Latin America, so his accent is super <laughs> thick. <laughs> and Heidi and I say, don't worry. I mean, you're a cute kid. I mean, your name is cool, too. You should go. In that equation, though, the parents are set free. The kid is set free. But Heidi and I lost. Heidi and I lost. We lost a piece of art. We absorbed the cost. We lost. And this is what makes Christianity amazing. That in this equation is not a junky, cheap art. In this equation, we are the one offending our God. In this equation, every single little thing is against this holy, pure, awesome God. And that God looks at you and says, you are free to go. But I absorb the pain. I absorb the cross. I absorb the cost by sending my son to die in your place. Can you see why is it that we cannot have forgiveness without the cross? Someone has to lose. And God did. How much do you value that? Do you understand that? Without the cross, there's no, there's no forgiveness. And without the cross, there's no love. Once again, the disciples have seen Jesus performing so many different things, doing so many loving things, loving people well. But this is the thing. Love is not just about the things you say and it's not just about the things you do. Real, genuine love is always sacrificial. See, there's a difference between fake love and, and a true love. Fake love is someone that does something or says something to another person for their own sake. So it's not like me going to hide and say, baby, I love you. But I say, I love you so she could do good things for me. That's fake love. I hope you know. Real love is the one that forgets him or herself. And that everything we do, we do it for the other person. For her benefit or his benefit. For their sake, not my sake. True love, genuine love, real love is willing to spend yourself and give up yourself for the sake of the other person. Now listen. 
You knowing that God is love is not enough. You got to see the magnitude of his love. He had to go to the cross so you could see that real love is always sacrificial. And it gets even better because he's sacrificial and he goes to the cross and he gets nothing in exchange. Like really, what can you give God? What can you give God that he doesn't already have? Does he need your praise? Does he need your money? Does he need your talents? What does he need? Nothing. The cross was necessary for us to see the magnitude of his sacrificial love. The cruciform love of Jesus Christ. Without the cross, there's no forgiveness. Without the cross, there's no love. And without the cross, there's no transformation. One of the things that we find in the scripture is that when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross to defeat the power of sin in us and the power of the devil. That's why Romans chapter 6 says that we are no longer, if you are a Christian, you are no longer a slave to your sin. Sin is no longer your master. And in Colossians chapter 1 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are still sinful, but we are not bound to our sin. We have been set free. All those three things has very practical and real implications. So, for example, if you have been forgiven, at a vertical level, you, you are no longer bound to your shame or your guilt. Amen? At a personal level, issue changes the way you see yourself. You are not defined by your sin. You have been already forgiven. At a horizontal level, if you have been forgiven, you should be able to have the power to forgive others. Because you extend to others what you have received. It is possible for us to absorb the cost of forgiveness. If you have been loved at a vertical level, it tells you that you don't have to earn God's love. You don't need to work for God's love. He already loved you in Jesus Christ. He went to the cross. At a personal level, listen up, you don't need people to love you. You are already loved. It's nice to feel loved, but you don't need it. Stop looking for it in human beings when you have it in God. On a horizontal level, you are really free to love others. You extend to others what you have received. Because you have been already loved, I could, pass, I could love my wife. I could love my girls. I could love my church. I could love my family. I could love my friends. I could love my coworkers. I could love the people that I don't like. Because I'm already loved. Can you see it? Now, in the order of the text, it's extremely important because Jesus is having this conversation and then he makes a statement that he must go to the cross. And the order in the text matters. Because after he says this amazing, beautiful thing that I just explained, 
He's going to show the disciples that there are implications in the way we live if we actually embrace this. Which leads me to my second question. Why must we learn to deny ourselves? Notice the order. Jesus talks about the cross. And then he says in verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I could spend hours just talking about those words. But I'm going to put it super simple. If you have tasted the gospel, if you truly understand who Jesus is, how Jesus saves, and why he went to the cross, if you have, uh, if you have believed that he is your Lord and Savior, you must, you must learn to deny yourself. Your will must submit to his will. There is no such a thing as a believer that is not learning to do that more and more. Actually, let me put it even more, more aggressive. Why not? I haven't preached in two weeks. <laughs> if that's not your life, you cannot be a Christian. If you don't make it a habit to surrender your will to his will, I, I have to question your Christianity and your salvation. Elizabeth Elliot in 1976, she preached this uh, a sermon to a conference, an Urbana conference to thousands of students. And the title of that talk was The Glory of God's Will. And this is what she says. Until you learn to offer up your will, you do not know Jesus as Lord. The will of God is not something you add to your life. It is a course you choose. It doesn't have anything to do with feelings. We forget that when we, when we became Christians, we were told to give up all rights to ourselves. To present our bodies as living sacrifice. You know how crazy that is for a modern world? The modern world says, well, that's not true. I got to be true to myself. I follow my heart. I follow my desires. I follow my dream. I am going to be whatever I want to be. Interesting enough, I think that there are so many believers that also believe that. And what uh, Elizabeth Elliot is going to say, that even if you're a believer, the tendency is to find difficult, not the things that we don't know about God, but we find it difficult, the things that we know about God. And that's why we use phrases sometimes like, I'm trying to find God's will for my life. This is what she says, that there's this tendency to over-spiritualize things instead of obeying. So, for example, he says, if you're a student, you don't need to pray about what to do. You study. That's the will of God. If you're a parent, don't pray, oh, should I be a good parent? No, be a good parent. That is the will of God. 
If you are married, should I love my wife? Of course love your wife. That is the will of God. Honor your husband. That is the will of God. If you are a worker, should I work hard? Should I not work hard? Of course work hard. That is the will of God. And then she says, if you know, if you do what you know about the will of God, he will take care of the rest. He will let you know what his will is. Do what you need, what you understand you ought to do. And rest that he's going to guide you in the rest of the process. This is what she says. Use your head. Recognize that God is sovereign in the world and over your life. Don't over-spiritualize things. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. So when I hear people saying, oh, that's, that's restrictive, that's, there's no happiness there, I would say maybe you got to read verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You know, it's interesting, the word life there is where we get the word psyche in English. And the word can be translated as inner being. And basically what Jesus is saying is that true life is when you submit your will to his will. True joy is when you submit your will to his will. True peace is when you find you submit your will to his, to his will. That, this is crazy. That was the one thing, the one thing that he was common in all the missionaries I talked to in the last two weeks. All of these guys are in places in which 1% of the population, 2% of the population, 3% of the population are Christians. Every single one of us are suffering somehow. And every single one of them are displaying the joy of their salvation. And the joy of giving up their lives for the cost of Christ. Do you know why they do that? Because they found this verse to be true. When we lose our life for him... We find life. Can you see why Jesus had to go to the cross? Can you see why Jesus, right after he says that, he says that we got to learn to deny ourselves. It's the proper response to someone that understands what the, what the gospel is. It's the most natural reaction when someone understands what Jesus came to do. How about if I tell you that there's one more thing that you got to keep in mind? And it's our future hope. Question number three. Why must we never forget our hope? If you notice in verse, there, he does two things. At the beginning of the text, in verse 21, right at the end, he says this. That not only he can, he's going to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things and be killed, but he says at the end, but that he, in the third day, he will raise to life. Resurrection. And then at the end of the text, in verse 27, he says, for the Son of Man is going to come in this in his father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And I find those two verses so significant. One has to do with the resurrection, and the other one has to do with the second coming of Jesus. Listen up, church. How do we know that when Jesus went to the cross was enough for us to be forgiven, for us to be loved, and for us to be transformed? How do we know? Because the resurrection is the ultimate evidence that that is true. 
Jesus says that he was going to die for our sins. Jesus says that he was going to go to the cross to love us. Jesus says that we will transform. He said that the, he said that, that would happen. He also said that he would die and resurrect. And he did. Therefore, everything else he said was true. Number one. Number two, the resurrection also tells you that God the Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven. The Father accepted that sacrifice. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be sacrificially loved forever. The resurrection is the evidence of that. And it doesn't matter if you feel that you're still bound to your sin. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ or you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be delivered. The resurrection is the evidence of that. What about the second coming? See, part of the reason why we struggle about giving up our will is because we think that if we give up our will, we're going to lose something good here. How about if I tell you that the second coming is what guarantees that nothing here satisfies? That all the little dumb things we're fighting for don't satisfy. That your home doesn't satisfy, your family doesn't satisfy, romance doesn't satisfy, work doesn't satisfy. Nothing satisfies. Nothing here is beautiful enough, powerful enough, uh, uh, satisfying enough. Nothing here. But when Jesus returns and he makes all things new, we will find a place in which everything is Perfect enough. Therefore, the question for us is this. Why settle for anything less than that? Surrender your will to his will. He knows best. He knows what he's doing. Why wouldn't you trust him? Didn't he prove his love for you when he went to the cross? Didn't he prove to you how much he's willing to do in order for you to be forgiven? How about if we live for his glory? How about if we learn to surrender ourselves to him? How about if we never leave the cross behind? Amen? Let's pray. I want you to take just a few seconds there, bow your head, close your eyes, and ask yourself the question, do I truly understand and believe why Jesus went to the cross? If you're a believer already, just preach that to you again. Preach that to yourself again. Remind yourself that you were forgiven. Remind yourself that you were sacrificially loved. Remind yourself that you're not bound to your sin anymore. And if you're not a believer just yet, 
This is the time when the Lord is calling you to surrender your life to Him. Surrender your will to Him. His will is much better than yours. So keep your eyes closed. And if there's anybody here that has never come to Jesus in that way, that has never made a profession of faith, I, I want to help you. I want to pray for you. So if that's your case, all you have to do right where you are is raise, raise your hand. I'll pray for you. Just raise your hand and I'll pray for you. My beautiful Savior, I do not know how many of us already have surrendered our lives to you. But this I know, that you do not want to leave us as we are. That you want the best for us. That there's nothing better to get to know Jesus and him as the Messiah, the one of sacrificial love. Please work in our midst. Transform our lives so we can surrender to you more and more. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says,